So the weather's turned nice, um, and that for lots of people has meant, I don't know, going outside, walking around, doing various outdoor things. Cleaning a lot of mud off the bottom of my dog. (laughs) (laughs) We've been cooped up. But Laura is on something special. Um, She is talking about, I don't even remember the term, did you say morel season? Yes, I'm talking about a potential early morel season. So foraging for morel mushrooms. I was going to say, how many people know what morel season is (laughs) listening to this? Because I just learned. You're foraging. Yes, for mushrooms. Like a raccoon or something. Yes. A woodland Uh, creature. I mean, have you ever had any question that that's actually what I am in my heart? Yeah, that's true. Um, Yeah, so you morel season only happens for about a month, maybe six weeks if you get really lucky. In Minnesota. Um, They're very finicky. The thing about morels as mushrooms is that you can't, like, propagate them the way that you can other mushrooms that I also go foraging for. Um, But while you're foraging for morels, if you've been lucky with the weather, Mm -hmm. then by Mm -hmm. the time that the morels come and they're, they're like, growing, Mm -hmm. you will also be able to get, like, fiddlehead ferns or, like, ramps. Wow. So, I was going to ask if I was going to be able to get a fiddlehead fern yeah. in this situation. Um, so a couple of years ago, Nick, my husband, and I decided that we were going to like start foraging. And uh-huh. we were like – so at the very beginning, you got to like learn a lot about plant identification yeah, right. because you don't want to like hurt yourself. And so morels are actually a very like, How would safe you – wait, wait, wait. How would you hurt yourself? If it's poisonous. You're talking eating the plant. Yes. You're just So you're wandering – I just want to get a picture here. <laughs> You're wandering the woods. Yes. Looking for little mushrooms. Yes. And just popping them in your mouth. No, you cook them. You bring them home and you wash oh. them and you cook them. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. But, yeah, so we so we spent the first year being really careful and, like, you know, we got all yeah. the identification books and, like, mm-hmm. learning about things and, like, mm-hmm. how they smell. So, like, oyster mushrooms smell a little licorice Morels are actually a very safe place to start because they don't have any mushrooms that, like, look like them but aren't edible. Uh-huh. Um... But yeah, we 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 found that we had accidentally planted fiddlehead ferns in our backyard. So like the first year, we were like, hmm, I wonder how fiddleheads taste. So we like cut them in our backyard and like brought them inside and we sautéed them. And yeah, so I want you to know I'm currently working on a transition. Yeah. In my head that moves <laughs> us from fungus to parasites to literary agents, <laughs> <laughs> which is to say, welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane. Uh, the foraging mammal across from me is Laura Sats. Say hello, Laura. Hello, Laura. Um, we're talking about literary agents today. Uh, Big surprise. Sp- specifically, we are talking about um, a paper that appeared uh, recently that I am very excited. Um, it's in a, a journal called American Literary History. The author is Laura B. McGrath. Um, The paper is called Literary Agency, and it's all about, literally, it's a pun, exactly that. Like, do agents have agency in this industry? Are we more important than we're letting on? Are we less influential than we're letting on? What's our deal? How are we influencing what gets published and why? All that kind of stuff. And the the piece raises a bunch of interesting points that we thought we'd kind of dissect on the show a little bit. But before we get to any of that, how about the basic rundown? Absolutely. So the first thing is that if you find morels or fiddlehead <laughs> ferns, not just kidding. Um, no, but really like do it with like a cream sauce and a pasta. It's very Don't good. give it away. That's Patreon um, content. <laughs> mushroom recipes are for paid subscribers. For for paid subscribers. Um, okay. Back to the actual podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are we just finished planning and putting on our calendar several different days to do our our big swath of kind of makeup patreon content if you haven't been listening to the last few episodes because we missed some time um what eric and i are doing is in addition to our regular critique episodes for our first pages and queries um we are going to do a lot of like mini episodes think like 10 to 20 minutes on a single topic or a single question yeah um so if you have something that's like maybe a little bit too big for a taloon and maybe like a little too short for like a full kind of episode sort right. of thing um that's what we're going to be covering 
Um, so if you have a specific thing that you want us to talk about, email us. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. This is also where you can send your first pages and your queries for us to critique on air. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm pretty excited about that. And as always, if you cannot afford access to our Patreon, um, send us an email. We'll give you access. No questions asked. Yep. So. Always. Um, So I guess we should just get started. So again, I was sort of drawn to this. I mean, so this paper was published. um, I'm just looking at the abstract here on March 7th of this year. Um, And like I said, it's called Literary Agency. It's by Laura B. McGrath. I'm going to read the abstract to you guys very quickly here in a second, just so you know what we're talking about. Um, But it was one that got, I know you and me talking, it was one that got a few other people in the industry talking because it basically, at least, well, actually, why don't I just read the abstract? And we can just sort of go from from there on the elements that I think that, you know, there are bits that I I know I found to be very interesting, and and there were bits that I disagreed with. All of it, I'm glad it's here. Like, I was very glad to read this piece um, some bits I really liked. Some some right. bits got me really mad. Or as Eric <laughs> right. says, red and nude. So, <laughs> so um, all right. So the abstract of this piece is here. This essay is one part documentation and one part provocation with a simple goal to acknowledge the agency of the literary agent. There is no figure more significant to contemporary literary production and less studied by scholars than the agent. Drawing on ethnographic interviews conducted with 28 literary agents over the course of four years, I argue that agents shape the form and content of contemporary fiction by acting as administrators of the logic of the marketplace, conditioning their clients to write in and for the international multimedia conglomerates known as the Big Four. I take the agent's list to be one of the central organizing heuristics of the contemporary literary field and read the list of one agent, Nicola Raghi, to examine what I call, quote, corporate taste personal aesthetic judgments carefully calibrated to anticipate and respond to the demands of publishing conglomerates. So, basically, what this person is arguing, uh, Laura McGrath um, is arguing, is that agents are, one, way more important than anyone lets on, right? I mean, she's basically saying that um, far from the the go-between role that we claim to occupy in publishing, we're actually doing quite a lot of work to influence not only what gets written, but what gets published, what gets acquired, all that kind of stuff. Um, Basically, the piece sort of argues that we are really key players in ways that the industry and popular culture isn't really acknowledging, and any study of what's getting published and trends should probably involve studying agents much more than it does, right? Yeah. And from that place... She sort of argues, or she starts to kind of examine the question, right? Like, okay, if agents are being, you know, are, are heavily influencing this process of acquisition, um, you know, what is it? What is their taste? Like, what? How are they doing it? In what ways? You know, where is their, you know, stuff coming from? And that's where she sort of makes what I think is a fairly provocative argument that we are administrators of provocative taste, or excuse, <laughs> excuse me, of corporate taste. And it's, it's an interesting question, and our discussion today is going to kind of go in two parts. The first thing, Laura, that I want to do is, is talk to you about taste, right? Yes. And so one thing that kind of occurs in this piece over and over and over again is that the writer in all her interviews with the various agents, she doesn't quite get a good definition of taste from the agents. Like she's mm-hmm. constantly, you know, she implies in certain points that like, Writers or agents were, you know, returning with like blank stares or weird silences when asked about it, or they would give short of shifting definitions, things like that. And so, I guess I would like, let's say for a second, Laura, you were asked that question. I'm asked that question all the time, Eric. <laughs> so, that, so that's the, that's the interesting <laughs> part we're going to get to. Um, Laura, tell me about your taste and first maybe even define what you think taste is. Yeah. Um, so, when I think about an agent's taste, um, it's in a lot of way very linked to like my brand, right? So uh-huh. the the key thing about my taste and and when I said that I'm asked this question all the time, it's I'm asked this question all the time by editors who I am meeting and talking to and hopefully able to like through that connection, able to sell them specific works right. by us having kind of the same taste. Which is a dynamic that she sort of unpacks in this piece a little bit in a yeah. kind of interesting way. Yeah. yeah. And so 
like the 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 like concept of of taste and who I'm explaining it to um, is very different as an agent than like how I have my own personal taste, right? Mm. Like the personal taste as as a reader is very much like all over the place. It kind of like has to do with vibes and like what the weather's like because I mostly listen to books <laughs> when I'm walking my dog and whatever. And then I have my professional taste, which is based on a lot, like I think mostly on like bandwidth. Is that like a yeah. weird thing to say? So, no, like, I think that the I think that uh, McGrath here would agree that, or that wouldn't be surprising to the writer of this piece to hear you say that. You right, know? because like so, and and to be fair, like there's again, I'm gonna have a lot of points where how I work bumps up against kind of the generalities right. that McGrath is right. talking about here because she's talking about literary fiction, right? Right. Um, that is a space that I do not really work in. The kind of when I bump into literary fiction, it's through science fiction and fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I represent, let me just like run through it for all of you guys. I represent young adult literature of all genres. I represent romance of all subgenres. I represent adult science fiction and fantasy of all subgenres. And I have um, room in my list for very, like, selective kind of contemporary or historical works, right? Mm-hmm. Or literary works. That's a lot of stuff that I need to be able to, like, that's a lot of people I need to know to be able to sell yeah. those books, yeah. right? And so even though, like, I, as a reader, read every kind of YA, um, there are certain things that I very much, like, gravitate towards in in YA, like certain types of voices, maybe a little like, you know, maybe a little bit voicier, a little bit more like Buffy or Veronica Mars-esque versus, you know, a kind of like, and versus something else that's not sure. like that, right? <laughs> like, like yeah. and I don't usually gravitate towards like straight up romances in young adult literature mm-hmm. it's got to have a little bit more like heft to it mm-hmm. um probably usually like linked to a lot of personal discovery or like big mistakes mm-hmm. right um and so even though i I, rep- I represent everything in that space there are certain tropes or certain vibes yeah. or certain voices that i go to so like for me <laughs> the idea of like an interviewer asking an agent, like, what is your taste like? And you that having is, a bullet-pointed list ready to go or something. It's such a big question. A big, so, here's what, so here's what McGrath says she got met with when she asked. I've got yeah. this passage flagged. By the fifth or sixth interview, I had come to expect that my question, how would you describe your taste, would be met with silence. Agenting is a profession built on taste, agents told me. It determines how they select their clients, their intervention in a book's production, and their position within the industry. Yet for all its importance, most could not describe their taste in any detail when I asked them directly. They would stall and sputter, conversational wheels spinning while they struggled to articulate that which had become second nature. The refrain was repeated often. I just like what I like. Filler syllables replaced sentences. Taste is entirely habituated. Agents describe taste as a matter of instinct rather than a principle of aesthetic judgment. And so I read that, and I've read that passage a few different times, and... I I guess I sort of disagree with the character. I mean, yeah. obviously, you know, we're working from I don't doubt that this is the response to this, you know, this writer got. Like, but I guess like the idea that I couldn't describe the things that I'm looking for or what I want in terms of um principles of aesthetic judgment yeah. or rather just instinct. I mean, on the one hand, it's what you're saying, right? Where like you know, even within hyper-specific categories and stuff, there are things you like, things you don't like, things you're looking for, things you're not. You know, there's a certain amount of I know it when I see it. You know, like I know oftentimes my – and this is where I would agree with, with this writer. Like a lot of the time what I want to say in response to that question is I like good things, <laughs> which is – which does, I think, speak to that idea that taste is like this sort of – Instinct, and we're going to get to in a minute how she believes this instinct is shaped. But, like, it's just, I guess to me, it feels like taste is a little bit more concrete than she's describing. Because, like, what yeah. you just did that I think is interesting is you drew a pretty sharp delineation between things you like to read and things you like to represent. Yeah. Which suggests to me 
that you have sort of done the level of concrete, you know, tangible reflection yeah. that she's seeing is sort of is sort of missing, you know? And you know what I would also say? Yeah. Like that that answer that I gave to you kind of explain explaining this like one tiny piece of my taste, right? Mm-hmm. And that, in like, my YA taste is super different from my adult stuff and whatever, because, like, I'm a complex human being that works in many different areas. Um, but I, I think one thing that's really important is, like, McGrath here isn't in publishing. Like, she's not an editor, right? right. And, and the, like, concrete, like, I, like, you know... Um, community-based narratives instead of, like, David and Goliath-based narratives in my Mm -hmm. science fiction and fantasy Mm -hmm. for adults. Like, that specificity is something that is actually, like, only useful inside the, like, publishing apparatus. When you talk to anybody outside of publishing, you don't want to give those kind of specific parameters because, like, the thing is, is, like, it's limiting, right? You don't want... Like, there is always that element of, well, these are the things I'm interested in. But, like, again, complex human being who can, like, love a lot of different types of books. Like, if I find something that's outside of those things, then I'm going to want to represent it. But I'm not going to, like, you and I have had conversations about this all the time about sort of scaling back our manuscript wish list in terms of what we talk publicly about the types of manuscripts we want to receive in our querying inbox. Mm -hmm. Because one of two things happens. <laughs> Number one, somebody self-selects out because the, their very specific book isn't mentioned in my MSWL. Right, right. Or somebody takes their manuscript that doesn't at all fit my manuscript wish list, but like kind of has like invents this kind of tenuous thread or connection to submit to me anyway. Yeah. Whereas it's so much easier for a writer and for me to just say very general things like mm-hmm. I am looking mostly for this. These are some tropes that I particularly yeah. love, but I'm very open and just kind of like let people have the opportunity to send me stuff. Yeah. And in that way, I want to obscure my taste because I don't want to I don't want to like write me out of a job. So this is also a this is an interesting point to pay attention to the types of agents that she's talking to. Um, especially with regard to, you know, we said at the top of the show, like she specifically is selecting agents who represent quote unquote literary fiction, right? Yeah. And like, and this is, this actually is one of the parts of this piece that I was really kind of nodding along to, which is like, and this is something I know I have felt in my discussions with you and other agents who represent more true genre fiction or other sort of more categorical stuff that relies a little bit more on convention. Like, I do think that you would have, and you do, You, I don't think, I know that you do, have a much more easy, you have an easier time describing concretely the different archetypes and things and features mm-hmm. of a book that you want. And, you know, you and I have talked before, like, yeah. so much of, um, you know. Well, my genres are predicated on tropes. I need to ex- be able to Exactly, do that. which is not necessarily true of literary fiction. And so she does something really interesting in this piece in, like, she takes on the concept of literary, mm-hmm. which is something you and I have done before too. But like, <laughs> she does it in a really kind of interesting way, which is to say, like, it's something that is sort of manufactured, and is sort of the result of a very commercially minded back and forth between publishing house and specifically in this paper, a corporate publishing house and an agent. You know, because they're mm-hmm. trying to like move clients through a system, right? And so, like, it's. There's like this laundering effect that happens. And this is something I do believe is happening, by the way, that there is the things we are calling, quote unquote, literary right now, the mm-hmm. highbrow literature, like what it actually is, is just like commercial fiction that a lot of invested parties have spent a lot of time trying to dress up, mm-hmm. you know, like I do think that's happening. And I do think like I was really fascinated by her discussion of like uh, Nicola Raghi's list, who, um, if you're unfamiliar with with her, like I mean, some of the books 
that she's represent. I mean, I was reading that list. And I was like, damn, there's some bangers on this. Yeah, Colson <laughs> so Whitehead. She got Colson Whitehead, Saffron Tommy Fowler. Orange. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Val- Valeria Lucelli is on that list. Like, lots of writers who I really like, but who I have read before. Like, and uh, I remember feeling like, you know, I was told this was a very, very literary novel, and I'm reading it, and it feels just kind of like commercial, you know, yeah. and it's. But I think that is what's happening. I do think that there is a kernel of truth to what she's arguing here, which is that the concept of like literary culture is somewhat the product of um, this back and forth between corporate publishing and the agents who sort of serve as talent scouts mm-hmm. and or you know list builder. You know, and like she gets a lot into the concept of like a list. You know, and how um, you know people use their established list to do things like develop comps and like get blurt like you know if you have a list full of writers that are really successful you can use you know the brands those writers have established to help and bring your own brand exactly to help bring someone new along to help kind of give someone the sort of literary prestige they might not have otherwise like all that kind of stuff so it's just interesting i mean the bits that i like take issue with here is the very and I, I guess, like, maybe what we should do here is I've got another passage flagged that sort of describes the nature of the, like, the concept of taste in relation to corporate publishing. So here, Hit let me. me. I'm so ready. Here we go. As such, agents' tastes are carefully developed with an eye to industry trends. I was told that, quote, believing in your own taste as a literary agent requires, quote, believing that they have a certain ability, a certain vision, a certain idea of what other people might like to read. In other words, the agent's taste is also attentive to that which is commodifiable, developed from careful study of the industry and the market, corporate taste. Though the ideal scenario was a less conditioned alignment between personal tastes and sales, such that something an agent loves translate immediately into commercial success, those instances are rare. This unlikely circumstance aside, agents who aim for both prestige and financial success must make their taste profitable and in doing so subject the literary fiction they represent to the logic of the marketplace through a developmental strategy carefully calibrated to corporate interests. Wow, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. Okay. Um, So, yeah, I mean, what are your impressions of that? So, no. Um, So, I guess... I'm, I'm kind of in a yes and no spot with this, but yeah. But I think I think why the, no? I think I'm mostly in the the reason no. I think mostly because I think this conclusion is predicated on a, a different part of this particular. I want to call it an essay. It's an essay. Um, the, <laughs> this particular essay on the idea of like looking at an agent's list as a like a like a piece of of like scholarly analysis mm-hmm. like a single unit yeah. right to to show taste um but here's here's kind of why like I'm bumping up against that right um there's three there's three reasons number 1 um uh, an agent's particular list and like what they're able to sell is is per- in fiction a little bit less so in nonfiction but in fiction it's it's like honestly like it begins as a very passive process for an agent like it kind of Explain requires why is it passive let's start with the first it, start it requires a writer to decide that they want to work with you right like that's the first step like an agent can't sign somebody that doesn't want them right um and so like. An agent can do as much to control that as possible by putting in their, you know, their manuscript wish lists and, like, appearing at conferences and, and, like, selling good books. But, like, fundamentally, like, what comes into your inbox is what you have to work with. Secondly, the books that somebody sells that, quote, unquote, like, are formulated to, like, sell to big four big five Mm -hmm. and are really like popular those are those are like the books that sell (laughs) right like you don't see the ones that don't sell you don't see like how much work was done by the agent to kind of push and stretch and like i think a big part of this essay that's missing is the idea like and we have this conversation all the time 
where you and I are constantly trying to like figure out how to sell and to pitch a work in a way that convinces particularly a literary house Mm -hmm. that actually they can do this work that kind of pushes outside of their comfort zone. So that's the bit that that's where I want to kind of freeze for a second and unpack because I agree with that, which is to say like when I like, I mean, basically what this is arguing is that when we sign a book, one thing we're doing, obviously we're trying to sign things that we think are good, right? Like I'm trying to sign a book that I do love. You yeah. know, that's the best case scenario. But we're also trying to sign books that we think that we can fit into the logic of, you know, a corporate publisher who might want to buy it. Sure. You know, according to – and I guess for me, I see so much of my job not being trying to – take anything I can find and sign and conform it to a a version of itself that then goes and, you know, fits the logic of a, you know, a safe corporate publisher, but rather like what you just described, which is taking something I really like, you know, a writer whose work I feel strongly about and doing the legwork of having conversations and, you know, trying to push in a way that gets whichever editor at whatever big house to kind of see that, hey, this is worth investing in, even if it's not necessarily of the lot. And I guess like... I That's guess where I, scouting is the wrong word, I right? That, we're not scouting, yeah. we're selling. And I feel that really I feel that really specifically on my list, I think, a little bit, because I work on a... You know, I do some literary stuff, um, particularly in nonfiction, and I do a lot of other sort of very politically and culturally themed, you know, nonfiction mm-hmm. writing. And, like, it's a lot of it is fairly overtly left-leaning, which is to say that anytime I pitch a corporate publisher, there is a certain amount of argumentation I have to have that involves, hey, you should look at this, you should take it on. No, this isn't another safe book by a giant platform MSNBC contributor. This is, you know, something from someone who's actually doing and I and like I guess it should be said, like I'm not necessarily the agent that this writer is talking to or talking about, right? Like she's talking about people who are, I mean, to be frank, much more financially successful. Well, in, you know, and like, she said that she talked to a lot of boutique agents. So I, I guess, like, yeah, like I guess, like we're, we obviously fit in that constellation. We fit into the boutique end of things, right? Which isn't to say that we aren't. We don't have a bunch of successful books because we do, and it's not to say that we don't have books that I think are at the forefront of literary conversation because we do. But it's. You know, I mean, I'm not Nicole Raggi, you know, like I don't have <laughs> like you can't point to the bestseller list and see five of my writers. You know what I mean? Like it's just not how it is right now yet. Um, yeah, that's the thing. So, <laughs> it's, it's time. It takes time. No, but I mean, like and so I think what's missing here for me is how much of my job is actually refusing to compromise on the vision on behalf of my writers mm-hmm. and instead trying to do that convincing like what she's basically saying here is that a huge part of our job is taking a writer's work and trying to morph it into something a publisher would like and I, i honestly feel like so much of my job has become taking a publisher's work or excuse me a writer's work and morphing an editor yeah you know what i mean like trying to do that level of convincing that we were like i i'll just like a huge 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 part of my job it's just getting on the phone and having conversations, right? And not always just about, like, a given project I'm trying to sell. It's like, hey, here's what I'm thinking about. Here's what I'm looking at. Here's what I think could work. Like, I probably I, I have these sorts of phone calls with editors all the time, constantly. And it's because I really think, like, and this is borne out in the things I've sold and the places I've sold to. Like, I sell, I sell things on the fifth conversation, yeah. you know, with an editor. I sell things on, you know, you're, like you're the king of having somebody be like, "This isn't for me," and then being like, "But are you sure? Like, do you yes, want to like exa- do some work right, on exa- it?" <laughs> <laughs> you would be, and this is a spicy point, but you'd be surprised how much work agents have to do right now to get editors to do things like edit a book. Um, but it's, I guess, I almost see what she's describing here in reverse, um, which yeah. is not to say what she, you know that this phenomenon is not happening. Um, But I guess I just don't think that, I guess like this last line here, like a developmental strategy carefully calibrated to corporate interests. I don't see it. And that's not to say, like, 
no books sell like that because there definitely are like there are books that are commissioned the kind of especially nonfiction books that kind of just like sit in that sort of fluffy middle area but Mm -hmm. i i have to tell you eric one of the things that's a little bit more subtle and is not like a so much as a concrete point from this this essay is that like the idea that agents have this corporate taste and they have to develop this corporate taste as if like literally everyone who reads doesn't have that. Yeah. Like so so much of my taste as an agent is just like a distilled like like narrowed version of my taste as a as a human being who mm-hmm. spent her whole life reading books published by publishers and like the whole that whole corporate taste thing it's it sounds really provocative when when you take like my job and you say oh we're selling it but then you have to remember that like nobody's taste is not corporate because we read what we're given and we develop our taste based on what we're given and so that that loop that you just described that sort of circular feedback loop of we we read what's in front of us and that informs what we then put back in front of publishers yeah it's one i do think it had and like to be said, like I think really the part of this essay that I connected with the most that I felt really kind of hit on something is the corporate manufactured idea of literariness. Yeah. Which I do think is real and I do think happens. And I do think there are a lot of books that are put on the literary fiction shelf that are mostly masquerading that way. And Literally really everything just... that comes out of the Iowa Writers Workshop. <laughs> wow. That's also another spicy That's take. Big. That is a big take. Um, <laughs> I have no comment on that. Um, but no, I mean, I think I I do think though that like that does happen, but it also discounts where, and I'm not necessarily saying that the writer is doing this because there's they have a specific focus here on corporate publishing behavior, but like real literary things aren't really coming from. Yeah. Like you look at the smaller presses, right? Like I mean, it's a place like. Like, to me, when I look at, like, truly literary publishing, it's places that aren't working from that vein. I'm thinking of, like, Tin House, Coffee House, Grey Wolf, you know, like, places that are not necessarily tied to the same incentive structures mm-hmm. and don't have the same. Like, there is real literary work happening right now all the time. It's just not it's not the books you think they are because there's this, like, separate idea of, like, corporate engineered literary fiction right. that is not and I think that so and this is where I want to kind of turn to part two of our conversation is because it, it, what it feels like um, Laura uh, McGrath here is saying here is that um, not only does this dynamic exist but that agents have way more of a stake in creating that than initially told and like one and this is actually one part of this that I understand where it's coming from, but disagree with, I think, is the idea that our in, our our field is like shrouded in mystery and and like have you been on Twitter? No I, is, <laughs> I just mean like so there is this popular perception, right yeah. that like agents are we're in the shadows, we're kind of invisible, you know, we're very closed off. We're these gatekeepers that have no transparency. And I do think that they're for a very long time was a period like that but I think that I wish that agents were quieter at this point (laughs) like I feel like if you go on book Twitter they're practically the central figures every day like it's agents talking about what they're reading what they're working on how they work on things you know like this show is an example of agents just refusing to shut up and (laughs) it's like I just I see it I, I think that maybe things are slightly more open now and discussion worthy and plus now we have forums you know there's absolute right there's query tracker there's all these different places where people have come together to put together information about the dynamics of agenting right like Mm -hmm. and so i'm not sure it's as closed off as they're describing but i do want to unpack the point a little bit now about agents as not just go-betweens, not just negotiators on the behalf of writers, but as actual players in the shaping and crafting of the literary scene. Because that's what this person is essentially arguing, right? They're saying, okay, 
you know, we know all about editors, we know all about writers, of course, but the figure in the equation that is actually has a huge outsized influence on what books get acquired and how and when and why mm-hmm. is the agent. And I guess so maybe what I want to ask you, Laura, is what do you what do you make of the idea that in the terms of the fundamental question of what gets published and how and like what the scene looks like, do you think that agents are as major of a player as writers and editors? I mean, no. Um, okay, why not? So the thing is, is like I, I like to I, – I ask myself this question all the time where it was like, is there a world where like agents don't need to exist? And and I think right. the answer right. – and, and we could do a whole episode about this. But I think – like the answer is, is that the need for an agent, the need for an advocate, for somebody who can negotiate your deals, somebody who can sell the things, who can fight for, you know, sub rights and blah, blah, blah. Like that is a unique position created by capitalism, right? Uh-huh. Like you have all of those houses that you mentioned before, the ones doing real good literary work that run on kind of a smaller scale. A lot of them don't like publish people that don't have agents, right? Yeah. And it's because they're kind of outside of that big conglomerate area. Well, and the other the other tie-in part of that, though, that kind of reinforces your point, though, is that a lot of the smaller houses, their, their contracts are worse, you know, they because they don't <laughs> because they don't deal with agents as much. Like, you know, a writer goes in and doesn't have someone advocating for them, and they just sign the paper, you know? And, right. But yeah. also, like, that's that's because they can, because right. capitalism. Um and, and so, like, I was even thinking about it, whereas, like, the conversations, like, my favorite types of conversations to have with my authors is along the lines of, like, okay, so we're on submission with this book, or we're going out on submission with this book, here is the strategy, if XYZ doesn't happen, then I'll move to this strategy, and then if that doesn't happen, we'll continue with this, and then we have, like, six more options there, and, like, talking about how the book that I'm on, like, I'm on sub with now will relate to the book that you're currently writing versus your schedule. And, like, all of that still, like, that need to navigate the market and to create space for the writer to, like, write what they want and get yeah. them. So my goal always as an agent is to get a writer to a spot where they can just, like, pivot. They can just, like, turn around and go... I want to do this or like they can just pick whatever they want. Right. Right. And that like requires a lot of like, there's a million ways to get there, but, and it looks different for everybody, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of steps and a lot of planning in between. So you got to have like 12 different strategies. Right. And like, even that, like (laughs) even that mostly just exist because again I'm negotiating the market versus the creativity and the output and the the interest level of my author. Um and so like the the idea that like agents are as important I think that they're necessary. I think that they're very important in the current publishing climate. I think that they're very helpful. Um but more as like a support role as an intermediary, you know, this, this, I got, I I had some laughs in this, in, in this article, McGrath's article about like, you can tell frankly that she's a little bit frustrated with the fact that like agents won't say like what kind of editorial work they've done on their projects yeah. and about like about, you know, and I think you can, like, tell that she wanted somebody to be like, yeah, I made them, you know, make it more commercial. But, like, honestly, most of the time it's just, like, the middle's a little slow. Let's talk about yeah. ways to fix. And, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, it's not it's not something you can point to and be like, I thought of this specific thing. Sometimes totally. you can do that. But that, like, even that is is not really, like, I'm not putting my fingerprints on the books. What I'm doing is I'm helping draw out the strength of the book that already exists. And do you think that you're doing that? When you say draw out the strength, Yeah, you're not, maybe you are subconsciously, maybe we all are subconsciously, but are we doing that with corporate taste in mind? You know, because like one thing that, I mean, it feels like the argument here that's being made, and it's one that I honestly, I think, 
I, I go back and forth on it because basically what's being said here is at the end of the day, the corporations in publishing are the mm-hmm. places with the money. Our job is to sell books. And so naturally, our job then is to find books and curate books that we think are going to garner money from yeah. corporate, you know. And so, like, on the one hand, I see why that makes sense. I see why you could say that perhaps, you know, agents are administered. Like, the, you know, the phrase, you know, that, um, you know, like here at the end, you know, a developmental strategy carefully calibrated to corporate in- interests or, like, the idea here that we are administrators of corporate logic before the book ever reaches the mm-hmm. corporation, like I don't, I don't, th- I, I think don't that think I disagree so. with it, and I, and <laughs> I'll tell you, I'll tell you why, um, because when I get ready to pitch a book, the one thing you know, for, I mean, first of all, what we do is I try to take an editorial approach when, on in the instances where I do edit, and I don't edit everything because some things need it, some things don't, you know, some things are early stage, sometimes people send me work that is done you know and like it's like we edit with a mind toward the work itself we want it to be the best thing it can be in the way the writer's most happy with i don't i don't make any changes to things that the writer says oh i don't like that but we're gonna do it anyway you know like that isn't something that really because it's your job to talk with them and figure out another solution because you're just diagnosing a problem right exactly so like and then what happens when i come up with my pitch list is like, okay, we're going to try these various, you know, imprints at these corporate publishers that I think might be interested, and usually to some degree they are and whatever. And then also, rather than go back to the drawing board and try to, like, let's say those corporate places turn it down, what we're going to do then is not try to retrofit it to match their fairly vanilla taste. And that is one thing I do think is happening here is, like, and this is something you and I have talked about a lot in an era when publishing works on a boom or bust cycle, like taste really narrows. Like that people want to publish mm-hmm. safe bets. Like yeah. it's not wrong to say that corporate taste is something that has the tendency to select a narrow subsection of what's actually happening in a literary scene, you know? But like I guess I look at that and I say, okay, then maybe your work, author I represent belongs at a house that isn't one of the big four at the big four you know maybe we're going to take it to a smaller press maybe we're going to you know there's the idea of like the drawer book right like which we're going to get to at the very end here like maybe the book is you know maybe it's not the right debut so we're going to set it aside for a second you know but like i i really think that apart from trying to just be the wheel greaser for the corporate machine our job is instead to help a writer get to like the best place for what their work is. And now I understand that that isn't always the most financially lucrative place. You know what I mean? Like sometimes that means that, hey, your best work is going to come from publishing with this slightly smaller press or this independent press. But that's where you're going to be happiest. And that's where you're going to feel like you're doing the work you want to do. And I guess that's always been and i'm not i truly truly and i i'm not trying to sound like high-minded or idealistic here i'm trying to say like the nature of my list and your list and many other agents i know has always been how do we get the people we're working with in the places where they should naturally be rather than like how do we mash you into the square hole that you know publishing has created for you you know and and also, know. like, if you start somewhere, like, the thing is, is and one thing I think this article does really well, is talk about how publishing requires comps and about yes. how it's arbitrary yes. and about how it's, you know, it's just, yeah. t- you know, whatever. And the thing is, is, like, yeah, if you start somewhere smaller and you sell really well, then you can go to, uh, you know, Simon & Schuster and get half a million dollars. Like, that's yeah. great. Yeah. Um, and and so you can kind of build that into your own strategy. Um, yeah, I just... Actually, before you move on, yeah. you, you said something really interesting there. Because you described a progression that yeah. happens a ton. Yeah. Which is to say a writer publishes their first especially a lit- so this is something that happens in literary fiction specifically quite a bit a writer publishes with a smaller press you know this happens in town too i feel like coffee house mm-hmm. is an example locally of a place that 
has had this happen many, many times where they publish a writer that maybe people haven't, you know, encountered before. Yeah. nominated de- for the book. Their de- yeah, their, de- their <laughs> debut novel or who- whatever it is, you know, like their essay collection, how whatever. It does really, it's just become sort of a literary sensation that was not published in a way that compromised its literariness to match a corporate interest. But And then book two comes around and based on that, original thing a corporate publishers and say okay yeah we definitely want book two and you see it all the time authors like Lucelli or Ben Lerner or um, Leslie Jameson you know these people who started out at an indie press then become you know a darling of sort of the more corporate leaning literary houses like a Knopf and FSG you know a Riverhead whatever and I think one thing this essay really at least for me, and this isn't, I don't know necessarily the takeaway of the piece, but it was for me, which is that, like, the major imprints that we call literary or really sophisticated really are mostly just, like, corporate arms, mm-hmm. you know? And their taste, and that's where I think I actually disagree with her. Like, that's where the dynamic you're describing is coming from. Because they're the ones with the money. Like, the, right. that's... The, <laughs> Like one thing about agents, like we, you could say we're as powerful as you want, but we don't we, have the checkbook. We don't have the work. I'm not the writer, and I'm not the person paying for the work. Like I, there's nothing, and there's nothing that can happen that makes me either of those things, you know. And like I can play matchmaker, and I can try to retrofit things a certain way, but it's I'm never gonna be the productive person or the person paying, you know. And so. <laughs> Like, it's just interesting. So I think there's a really, really good point about, like, literary publishing from corporate publishers and how Mm -hmm. there's sort of something happening there that isn't necessarily high art, you know? Um, But I don't know. I mean, I guess, like, it's – I mean, I guess I came away with many different feelings from this piece. Um, I'm glad it exists. Like, I I do think the the fundamental assertion that – Writer behavior is obviously scrutinized to high heaven. Mm-hmm. Editor behavior is something that even is something that you know people have long been interested in. No one really st- studies studies the agents. Yeah, and I do think there is like if something like this means that we get more of this sort of work, I would be into that. Like I would like to see this sort of rigorous reflection because, like, things happen all the time in patterns in the Asian Inc. world that make me think. What the hell are we doing? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, don't know. I, I would like I would like to see <laughs> um, somebody jump off of this work, somebody who has perhaps previously been in publishing or is currently in publishing. Um, because I think there's just like we have a made up job, right? Like we we're not the writer, we're not the editor, Cannot we're not the publicist. How made up my job is. So yet. made up. Like what are the <laughs> what are the boundaries of this job? Yeah. I don't know, it depends on the situation. Yeah. Um and so it's like it's hard for somebody on the outside to really look at that and like honestly study it academically. Like you can look at lists and you can look at the the work that we're doing behind the scenes and kind of talk about our taste all you want but at the end of the day like this article talks a ton and argues about how we are just cogs in a larger machine we are we are administrators of a taste that is corporate even though we are outside of that corporate structure and the article is filled with examples of how people actually have fought back against that and have changed yeah. things on their own rather than sure. just being administrators of the corporate yeah. like cogs. Yeah. And so I, you know, I think obviously parts of this made me very, sure. very grumpy. Um, sure. But again, like I'm within the context though of appreciating yeah. that this exists. And oh, like, of course. Yeah. And like, and of course, but like, of course I'm grumpy about it because I work in a space that's not covered here and right. thus functions completely differently, yeah. which I think is another yeah. struggle. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, and I think, I hope that the people listening to this will, will kind of chime in or do the reading or, um, you know, just like sort of calibrate their own opinions and start thinking about agents in a little bit more of a structural way. Um, but I want to transition now yeah. to 
Our Tulun It May Concern. Yes, please. Um, do you want me to read it or yes. do you want to read it? Let me it? pull it up. Okay. Um, all right. I've got it. Read it away. All right. Tulun It May Concern. In a few months, I will have been querying a manuscript for two years and will have exhausted my query list. Now, I still have several fulls out, and I know all it takes is one agent to make a call, so I'm not saying it's over for that particular manuscript. But for the sake of my question, let's assume that it is. So what comes next? I should clarify. Obviously, I'm working on other things. I'll eventually be able to query another novel. I'll continue to submit short stories, etc. But I'm not ready to give up on this particular manuscript just yet. So I'll probably start submitting it to small presses that open once a year and micro presses that have good standing or that I'm personally familiar with. If one of them happens to want to publish my manuscript, given the previous stated assumption of, quote, exhausted query list, would that MS and by proxy, I have to make that journey sans agent? Or is there any non-intrusive way to go back to agents who, give, who gave good feedback on fulls, but had some other stated reason for not making a call, such as not feeling it, feeling like they should champion it, or not the right fit, to see if they should be interested in giving it another look if there was a publishing offer on the table? Okay, so first of all, in a vacuum, this is a good question. Yeah. Um, I a lot do of layers. I do think, fundamentally, it is a good idea if you get an offer from a smaller independent press or whatever, and you're if you're just the writer and you submit it somewhere and you get an offer, it is, I think, a good idea to do a quick round of agent yeah. queries. And you tell the press, I need, you know, some time. I'm I just gonna go find look for a presentation. Yeah. If they're a good small press, they will say sure. And they'll wait for you to get an if agent. If they don't wait for you, if they don't like that, that's a red flag. Um, but I do think you so, but it sounds like the question you're or the conflict you're running into here is that all the people you would theoretically want for that you've already reached out to and they've already maybe turned this down. And so I guess I, I don't know that I would go back to people who've rejected the same book that you're now pitching. Mm-hmm. Like, but I, I guess when you say you've exhausted your querying list, I just have a hard time believing that there aren't always a few more people that you know you could kind of find mm-hmm. with something like this. Maybe that's not, maybe that's true. Maybe you really have. It gone through the entire list in which case i guess i guess i guess and you got to be kind of you would do a very small round of like i'm just thinking of what i would what like how i would respond to something like this like if i it was a book that i turned away because like maybe it was something i felt encouraged by or whatever like if it wasn't just like a form rejection or something if mm-hmm. it was something that really resonated with me but i turned away i would be interested to hear Sure. But then again, I, I guess it's tough. Like, I like, would. What's I also, the worst that's going to happen, though? You get a no? Yeah. I'm also loath to say go back to people who already rejected the book because that's not usually something you want to do. But what do you think? I think that all of that advice that you just gave is a moot point, and I'm going to tell you why. All right. Um, we'll cut my part out of the episode. <laughs> no, no, go for it. Uh, so, one of my favorite things as an agent is to have trunk books to work with. Yeah. Okay. And I probably should figure out another term for it because like trunk books, like, like a that. trunk book yeah. is used by a writer to describe like the book that taught them how to write the one that's in the, in the trunk yeah. or in the drawer that will never see the light of day. I'm talking about like your winter clothes closet book, right? Mm. The one that you yeah. just like put away, you bring back out when it's time. Okay. Um, and so the thing is, is like, And this will really depend on what your vision is for a particular book. But, like, exhausting the querying for a particular book does not mean it's the end of the road. Like, if you have a vision to, like, work with an agent on this particular book, you don't, like, if you run out of agents to query and you're still left unagented, you don't have to go to small presses without an agent or micro presses if you don't want to. Right. Because what you can do is you can just keep it in your back pocket and, you know, ideally write another book, get an agent with a different book, and then say, BT dubs, I have this other other book. Yeah. And like a lot of the times, you know, like you can sit on that book and maybe the market conditions aren't perfectly right for it now and it will change. Maybe your writing isn't quite as strong, but writing that second book yeah. will help you improve. And yeah. so then you can go back and rewrite that. So let me let me like walk you through the trunk books that I'm working on right now. Number one, 
I am revising a book that I actually signed an author with Mm -hmm. that I Mm -hmm. never went out on submission with and we're revising it to go out on submission with it now. It's been several years. Um, I have a book in final editing stages right now that I actually went on submission with as that would be the author's debut. Didn't sell. We trunked it. Five years later, came back, sold for about three times what it would have if it had sold originally. Okay? I have another book that has just been kind of like sitting at 70, 75% complete by one of my authors and an opportunity came up, like a, a kind of like special opportunity. Mm-hmm. And now it's going, hey, you have this partially complete thing. We can take it and we can submit it for this special thing. Like those are three different types of things you can do with yeah. a trunk book once you know you like yeah. have an agent who has access to all of these opportunities. Um, it could also just be a matter of like you wait a year, market changes, and it sells. You so know that actually is the tie-in to the rest of our discussion yeah. today, which is like maybe what you've written is something very good that doesn't necessarily hit the current trends or whatever, and so you know you keep it, you don't toss it. When we really like, I feel always uncomfortable with the trunk book conversation because I think that sometimes writers hear it as a euphemism for that's not the one. Yeah. But I think we really do mean it. That yeah. like sometimes some, a book just isn't a good debut. Like you come back to it. You you know, like and it, it's the same way, like this is one thing that someone can do rather than try to change the book and, you know, mash it through the corporate meat grinder. Yeah. We can wait for the corporate world to change a little bit. Yeah. And then say you know what I mean? And so like it's I don't know. The long view here actually is a valid one and I think has paid off for a lot of people, you know? Yeah, yeah. And you know, like there's there's very few properties in fiction that expire. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like there's very few ideas where if you've written like ninety flipping thousand words on it, like mm-hmm. there's unless it's just like really truly you learning how to write and it's garbage like if you are a competent writer and you have an interesting idea it's so rare that there's not something to be salvaged there you know and it might take a long time you might have to completely rewrite it you might have to add ghosts i don't care but like that it's like you have this thing and also like what's so great about like a winter closet book a cedar closet, if you will, to keep the moths <laughs> out. Um, I'm getting ready to put all my like big wool sweaters away, so I'm thinking oh about cedar. God. The thing about the cedar closet book is that it also, like, not only in the potential of fitting the market or making you more money a little bit later on, but I think one of the things that I love so much about this type of book is that it buys you time. Yeah. And, like, if you are an author who is you know, three, four books in, you're on deadline, you've perhaps moved from one book deals to two or three book deals, you have deadlines. And a lot of the time that like messes with, you know, you've got tons of books and you've got tons of things, but you don't have a lot of money coming in, you don't have a lot of time, but you still, you know, and for some reason, two of the books that you wrote skip a year and then come out a year later so mm-hmm. it's going to look like you have a break like a, in your yeah. in your schedule like all of that kind of outsidey stuff yeah a cedar closet book has, fills the gaps has it fills the gaps and yep. it's kind of like minimal minimal work is a is a you know stretch but like it's something that's already written that buys you time as you are growing your career yeah and so even like So when you think about, you know, have I reached the end of the road with this book? It's just maybe you've reached the end of the road with this book in this current market with these current agents in querying. But there's so much more road. Yeah, there is. I mean, it's so I guess I agree with what you're saying, which is that it's fine to set a book aside for a minute, come back to it. And, you know, it sounds like you're already going to do the other things, right? Like you're working on other stuff and it's like. These things can exist in parallel, right? Like, yeah. like you're saying, it's not just one linear thing. Like, and you may meet someone who pops up, you know, whenever that you maybe hadn't ever talked to or met, and they sound like the perfect fit for this other book you've already got done that you can come back to and send that. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, there's lots of ways to go about it. So I think that, you know, you and I are big believers in the idea of the, what did you call it, the cedar closet? Yeah, because trunk doesn't work. 
drawer doesn't work. Closet is a little weird. Yeah, it's specifically the cedar closet. The yeah. thing where like you keep your good shit in there waiting for the appropriate time. Right. All right. That's what well, it good. is. The cedar closet book. Good. <laughs> all right. Thank you all so much for joining us on this very spirited episode of Print Run. Um, remember to send us your queries, your first pages, your requests for our little mini-sodes, and we will see you for a regular episode next week. Bye.